0: neighbor you are listening to the new garden church podcast we're glad you're here this year we are walking through the whole bible together as a church family day by day and week by week we're meeting online right now but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at dupont tyler middle school in hermitage tennessee you can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online we would love to hear from you
1: This week, Jeff provided a message from the book of Jeremiah about a time when God's people had let their worship become about everything but Yahweh.
0: We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon.
1: Good morning and welcome to week 20 of our series, Long Story Short. We are inching closer and closer to the halfway point in our journey through the Bible together this year. And today, we come to the book of Jeremiah and we're gonna be here a while. Why? Well, because uh, besides the fact that it's full of poetry and rich theology, it's also very long. So long, it's actually the longest book of the entire Bible if you count the number of words. Sure, there are 150 Psalms, 66 chapters of Isaiah, but these 52 chapters of Jeremiah have more words than either of those by themselves. So this book is just, it's really long. So we're, we're going to talk about one specific chapter today that can... It's going to be kind of a downer um, next week we've got a special Sunday for our graduates and in two weeks we will return to the book of Jeremiah for a chapter of hope and restoration now as you read this book you're gonna find Jeremiah's life portrays him as a courageous persistent prophet who often had to endure physical suffering for his allegiance to his prophetic call. But he also suffered inner doubts and conflicts. There's this strong conflict between Jeremiah's natural inclinations and his deep sense of vocation to deliver Yahweh's message to the people. Jeremiah was by nature sensitive, introspective, and perhaps shy. He was denied participation in the ordinary joys and sorrows of his fellow men like he'd never got married. Uh, Jeremiah had periods of despair when he expressed the wish that he'd wish he'd never been born or that maybe he would run away and live alone in the desert. Yet there were also times of just exaltation when he could say to God, your words are a joy and a delight to my heart. And like most of the prophets, Jeremiah pronounced God's judgment upon the people of Judah in his time for their wickedness. Now to understand the book of Jeremiah, and his message of judgment against Judah, there's no better place to go than Jeremiah's famous temple sermon in chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to chapter 7. This passage is like a one-stop shopping center for all things Jeremiah and judgment. So understanding what's happening here will help you better grasp what's going to happen in the rest of the book. But spoiler alert, this isn't a feel-good kind of sermon. Rather, Jeremiah is sent into the temple courts to accuse God's people of their false religion and idolatrous practices. They worship God in the temple, but all the while they allow the immigrant and the orphan and the widow to suffer in their midst. There's no justice or righteousness in the land. Judah's corporate and covenant life is morally bankrupt and deserving of God's judgment. So to expose their vulnerability, Jeremiah preaches in the very place they think is most safe. Jeremiah's sermon is sandwiched between the fall of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire. This was a politically turbulent time in Judah's history, in which the nation grasped for some sense of stability and security. This period birthed the popular belief that the temple itself was some sort of guarantee of God's presence and protection, as if he were bound to it despite their disobedience and corruption. After all, they could reason, hadn't God made a covenant to David back in 2 Samuel 7, promising that his kingdom and his throne would be established forever? And hadn't they been spared the devastating fate of the northern tribes in 722 BC when they're exiled off into uh, Assyria? So thus, the temple became this false assurance of God's protective power, like a good luck charm. They trusted the temple rather than God. They felt that, like they were untouchable, even as Babylon cast this shadow over Jerusalem. They couldn't have been more wrong, though. God sends Jeremiah into the temple to proclaim this message. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand at the gate of Yahweh's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship Yahweh. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So the real issue here is that they were preoccupied with the temple rituals while giving little to no concern to the ethical demands of the covenant. The vulnerable, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow were suffering in their midst. They were breaking the 10 commandments and they were wrapped up in idolatry. Like check out verse nine. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares Yahweh. So they were doing all these things to break the covenant And yet they kept going about their external worship as if God was pleased by this. In Jeremiah's view, nothing short of moral reformation and spiritual renewal could deliver them from the coming judgment. Jeremiah remembers Moses' speech at the end of Deuteronomy, where he lays out the consequences of following and not following the covenant. Remember, chapter 28 was all about blessings for following and Even more curses for not following. And now we see persistent covenant violations. So we expect some curse to follow, specifically Exile from the land and expulsion from God's presence. They couldn't tie God's hands in the matter. If the temple became a refuge to flee to so they could feel safe with their idolatry and sin, uh, which is what he means by this den of robbers phrase, if they're going to treat the temple like this, then God would just destroy it. Jeremiah illustrates this point by reminding them of Shiloh, the first permanent place of the tabernacle less than 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares Yahweh, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all of your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. It was well known to Jeremiah's hearers that worship at Shiloh had been shut down and overrun by the Philistines because of Israel's chronic sin. They would would have remembered Psalm 78. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among humans. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword, he was furious with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men and their young women had no wedding songs. Their priests were put to the sword and their widows could not weep. Since God destroyed a city that housed the tabernacle and the ark in the past, how could Jerusalem be so sure that it would escape the same fate? The answer is, it wouldn't. Yahweh was about to allow Jerusalem to face the same fate as Shiloh. Now at this point, you're probably thinking, These people need to get like on their knees and pray and just pray as much as they can. But God gives Jeremiah a startling command in verse 16 saying, so do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me for I will not listen to you. Maybe Jeremiah thinks he can mediate some sort of understanding between the people and God. Like we remember a similar situation in Exodus 32 in the story of Moses and Israel's golden calf incident. There, Moses interceded successfully for Israel after their blatant covenant violation. But here, God is intentionally not going to allow Jeremiah to intercede for Judah. Why, you may ask? Well, just keep reading. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Their children gather wood, The fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares Yahweh? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Now maybe the description starts to bring to mind preparations for a wholesome family afternoon. You know, kids gathering wood for the bonfire. Dad kind of getting the fire started. Mom's over there getting food prepared. You're thinking s'mores are coming. Seems like a picturesque fall day. Until you realize they're doing this to worship the Queen of Heaven, this astral deity the pagan nations worshipped. Idolatry had so infiltrated Judah that whole families were engaged in the cultic worship of false gods. It wasn't only misplaced confidence in the temple on a national level, it was demonic idol worship on the family level. Judah, like Israel, had become so thoroughly corrupt that there was nothing left for them but divine judgment. Therefore this is what the Sovereign Yahweh says, My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, and on the crops of your land, and it will burn and not be quenched. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel says, Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. So the law states that a burnt offering was supposed to be consumed by fire, but God says now they might as well offer their burnt offerings alongside with other sacrifices and eat the meat because it was all the same to God. Their sacrifices were meaningless since they didn't trust and obey Him. God makes it clear that what He wanted from the covenant relationship was simple, trust and obedience. The sacrifices were to be offered on the basis of faith in God who had delivered them out of Egypt. Like a child, they were called to follow him and listen to his words, but they didn't. They rebelled against God in the wilderness and they continued to rebel to the present day. But maybe this generation will be different. Maybe this generation will have a change of heart and listen, right? More like, yeah, right? When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore, say to them, This is the nation that has not obeyed Yahweh its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Cut off your hair and throw it away. Take up a lament on the barren heights, for Yahweh has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under His wrath." Despite all the warnings of the prophets, they persisted in their sin. The time had come to hand them over to their destruction, which is how Jeremiah ends his famous and wildly unpopular sermon. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares Yahweh. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Tophet in the Valley of Ben-Hanom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when people will no longer call it Tophet or the Valley of Ben-Hanom, but the Valley of Slaughter for they will bury the dead in Tophet until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate." Judah's social injustice and idolatry tragically intersect just outside the city walls in the valley of Ben-Hanom. There they built a high place of Tophet, a name that emphasized the shameful nature of their site. They burned their children alive as sacrifices to please pagan gods like Molech. Child sacrifice was explicitly forbidden in the Torah, and in Jeremiah's sermon, it's clear that God hates it so so much that such a thing wouldn't even enter his mind. Jeremiah proclaims that this valley would become the ironic site of their destruction. It will be renamed the Valley of Slaughter. They're going to try and bury their dead, and there's going to be no more room. When Babylon captures them, the place where they once slaughtered their children will become the place where they themselves are slaughtered. In those days, the place will be so full of dead bodies that they will remain unburied and left as food for scavengers like birds and wild animals. An indescribable horror for the Israelite. And with that, Jeremiah's sermon concludes. The hearer is left with images of corpses heaped up on one another as Yahweh silences the voices of gladness in the streets of Jerusalem. The point is inescapable. All of their empty rituals will come to a halt as the city and the temple they cherish so deeply is laid waste in the Babylonian captivity. However, Jeremiah 7 isn't the last time we hear about this particular idea in the Bible. The Valley of Hinnom was translated into Aramaic as Gehenna, which was later translated into the Greek Gehenna, a term you might be familiar with. It's the New Testament word for hell. So in the Jewish mind, Gehenna was the place of eternal punishment for the wicked. It's actually a um primary metaphor that jesus used to talk about final judgment his understanding would have been shaped largely in part from this passage in jeremiah where children were burned in the terrible fires illustrating the powerful way in which all forms of judgment are essentially the product and the consequence of evil for jesus hell or gehenna is final judgment reserved for those who like judah persistently reject God's call to repentance. It's for those seeking false security in something other than faith in God's gracious provisions, so they can pursue their idols and continue in destructive ways of life. Now there's another important New Testament connection with this passage that you don't wanna miss. If you turn to Matthew chapter 21, you'll get a sense of deja vu. Israel is back in the promised land, the temple is rebuilt, Empty ritualistic worship is alive and well, and social justice is totally neglected. God's people have placed a false sense of national security once again in the temple, despite being under Rome's thumb, which is often associated with Babylon in the New Testament. The circumstances are strikingly familiar. This is Jeremiah seven all over again. And into this context, Jesus storms into the temple courts, turning over tables and driving out money changers and starts combining scripture from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. There would not have been an Israelite in the temple that day that missed what Jesus was saying through this symbolic reenactment. Yahweh was coming to destroy the temple as an act of judgment against Israel's empty religious practices and their covenant unfaithfulness. But just like the prophets of the Old Testament, who spoke a message of judgment and also a message of hope, Jesus offered an alternative message to those who were willing to listen to his words. Jesus' own body as the true temple of God would be destroyed on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for rebellious covenant breakers and raised on the third day. All who trust in Him as their true source of hope. Not a lucky charm who offers you a get out of hell card. They're given new hearts and new lives. And these new lives result in the kind of things that God had always wanted from Israel. True worship. Acts of justice. Obedience to His words. God was doing a new thing. The temple in Jerusalem made of stone would soon be destroyed. But God was going to sanctify a new holy space for His Spirit to live in. Humanity. For those who cleanse themselves by the blood of the new lamb, they would become sacred space, a new temple. That's why Paul would write to the believers in Corinth and say, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you, together, are that temple. God's plan was to create a way for His people to be His temple. But now the litmus test of the temple activity is held up to us. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing as God's temple? When people interact with us, are we a house of prayer or a den of robbers? Before Jesus clears the temple, the story tells us that he passes this tree that's covered with leaves. And Jesus goes to it expecting to find fruit, but there is no fruit. And so he curses the tree. Then he enters the temple and there are all these kinds of people there. It's full of activity. It's, it's like a tree covered with leaves and it looks good. But again, Jesus does not find fruit. And so he brings judgment. We have been offered the gift of being the temple of God. And while our salvation does not come from the things we do, it's based on the work and worth of Jesus. Let us step into our role as his chosen medium in this world to bear fruit. To be the temple that bears His name, so that the nations may know His love and His glory. Now, each week we come to a table, and we have an opportunity today to examine our lives. Uh, to re- do they reflect what we have received, the calling we have received? And as we take the bread and the cup today, let us let it produce in us this desire to be more like our Savior. Let's go to the table.
0: That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us and we'll be back with another episode next week.